is the day that the Lord has made. We should rejoice and be glad in it. Let's turn in our Bibles to the book of 2 Corinthians chapter number 8. 2 Corinthians chapter number 8. We are taking a break from our preaching series in the book of Matthew to get our house in order and deal with membership issues and also just some of the duties of Christians, of fully devoted followers of Christ. And so we've talked about the importance of membership in a local church. Um, and then last week we dealt with uh, the first part of giving from the book of Malachi chapter 3, and this week we are also looking at giving once again from the New Testament perspective as well. Uh, it, it goes, it must, let me restate this true fact that it is expected of members that they would give generously to their local church. And so one of the things that we as elders are doing is one, we say, hey, let's make sure our teaching is right on this issue. And let's make sure we've equipped our people to, to know why we give and the expectations of giving as well. So turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. We'll read the first nine verses, and then we're going to turn to chapter 9 of 2 Corinthians and read uh, a few verses from there as well. As is our custom, let's stand in honor and reverence to God's holy word. 2 Corinthians chapter number 8, beginning with verse number 1. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been Giving among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, and in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, 
Yet for your sake he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, beginning with verse number 6. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely, he has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. The word of the Lord, thanks be to God. You may have your seat. As I said earlier, we began last week looking at Malachi chapter 3, verses uh, 6 through the following. And the question was, will a man rob God? Yet you have robbed me in tithes and in offerings. And so we've looked at some of the principles of giving under the Old Testament. And some of you checked out on me because I was preaching about giving from an Old Testament passage. Because many of you say we are now under a new covenant. So we need to be looking to the New Testament for principles on giving. I heard you. I did. And so I said, let me make a case for giving under the new covenant or the New Testament. And, come on through. And... So let me just see how they gave. Let me give you a couple examples of how giving is affirmed in the New Testament. I'm reminded of a widow. Jesus was, he sat down opposite the treasury at the temple. And the text says in Mark chapter 12 that he watched the people putting money into the offering box. 
Ooh, that is convicting and scary that the Savior, our Lord, is watching how we give on a regular basis. Then the text goes on to say that the rich put in large sums. But a poor widow came and put in two copper coins which make a penny. And here's what Jesus had to say about the giving of the rich and this poor widow. He said, truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contribute out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. New Testament giving, you say. You want me to teach on New Testament giving. I thank you for the opportunity. This woman sacrificed all she had in the service of her Lord. You say, that's just one. Give me another. I sure will. I'm reminded of the church as they were beginning in the, at, at, once they had began in the book of Acts. They were, God was adding to the church and, and, and the church was multiplying exponentially. And the record that we have in the book of Acts, which last time I checked was in the New Testament, the text says that the, the, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one uh, said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common voluntarily. And with great power, the apostles was giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many were as owners of lands or houses, watch this, sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. So I thank you for the opportunity to preach on a New Testament perspective of giving. Because in the New Testament, grace is not an excuse to give less. Listen, I'm already exciting myself this morning. Grace is, is it, grace says, I've been given too generously, so now let me give generously. And so now we look at a specific example this morning in 2 Corinthians chapter number 8. A collection for the poor in Jerusalem that Paul had been organizing for years. And so now he talks to the Corinthians about their giving. He says you had good ambitions, but your follow through is lacking. And so here in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 9, we get some principles for giving. Now, let me help you understand something. We've taken 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9 and said that this is uh, uh, the mandate for giving under the new covenant. Let me make sure you understand context because anytime you take the text out of the context, all you have left is a, help me preach then. 
This passage is about benevolence. This was about helping the poor. Not the regular Sunday to Sunday giving of followers of Jesus Christ. However, I do believe that there are some principles for us in these two chapters about giving. Let's look first of all at the patterns for grace giving, the patterns for grace giving. There, there are a couple of examples here that I want us to look at. Look first, first of all at the pattern of the Macedonians in their giving. The Macedonians. First, look with me at their, their situation. Verse 2 says that they had experienced and were experiencing a severe test of affliction. Their situation was that they were being persecuted, beaten, ostracized. And then they were also being tested. They, they, they were under severe test of affliction, but they were also experiencing extreme poverty. That term extreme translates down to the depth of poverty. They had literally reached rock bottom of poverty. It was the deepest level of poverty. They were poorer than poor. And the text says, out of an abundance of joy. Wait a minute, that, those two things don't go together, it seems. There's a severe test of affliction and extreme poverty, but yet there was an abundance of joy. That helps us understand that joy is not based on circumstances. See, circumstances will get you down in the depths. They will cause you to despair and be depressed. But those of us have Jesus know how to still have joy in the midst of a storm. Matter of fact, Jesus, once again, is our example of how to have joy in the midst of affliction because here Jesus is hanging on the cross, crown of thorns in his head, nails in his hand, and the text Hebrews tell us, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. So we know how to process this because if, if, if there's no, 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 no suffering, no, no cross, there can be no crown. So the text says they still had joy. So look, in, in all of that, their test of affliction, severe test of affliction, extreme uh, amount of poverty, they still had joy. Watch what they do. Despite all of that, the text says that they still sacrifice their wealth. ESV says they overflowed in a wealth of generosity. The text says that they gave according to their means. In other words, they gave what they could afford. That's a biblical principle. Let's take it. But wait a minute. Where y'all marked out the rest of this verse, I'm going to tell you what it actually says. The text says, not only did they give according to their means, but they gave beyond their means. 
That's what they could not afford. Notice this, that they didn't give out of their surplus. Text says they gave out of their poverty. Remember that widow? Jesus says the rich, they gave out of their abundance, but she gave out of her poverty. That's the New Testament example for giving for disciples of Christ. We give to a point where it hurts. This, beloved, is authentic grace giving. Grace giving is sacrificial. Grace giving is not a license to keep more for myself. Grace giving is not an excuse for me to keep more so that I can buy another boat. Grace giving is not an excuse for me to keep more so that I can have a bigger house. They didn't let how little they had keep them from being generous. Matter of fact, they begged Paul to take their money. I'm waiting. Ha! I'm waiting for y'all to beg me. You won't have to beg, matter of fact. You're going to be like, you don't even have to ask. You'll be like, Pastor, here you go. I'll be like, thank you. That's a joke. Kind of. Beloved, look at this. Despite not knowing how they, what meal they were going to eat next, they didn't know what they were going to wear. They, they still gave generously. And beloved, this is a pattern, an example worth following. I wish that I could say that the same thing of the church today, but I can't. More than saying how generous are the righteous, really what I can say is how many are the excuses of the righteous. We've got an excuse for why we can't be more generous. I got to do this and I got to do that. And by the way, it's been two years since we vacation. I got to take use my money for vacation too. I, I, we, we, we've been saving up for two years for weddings and all kinds of stuff. There were no excuses. They saw a need and they met it, even out of their poverty. It is said that on average, Christians only give, in totality, 2.5% of their income. That's the statistic. Though we make more than we were, than people were making in the 1960s. Actually, it's a, we're making almost double than what people were earning back during the Depression. We actually give less than what Christians gave during the Depression. Beloved, that's not grace giving. That's a shame. They gave out a severe test of affliction and extreme poverty. But how could somebody actually do that? Look at verse 5. Verse 5 says, they gave themselves first to the Lord. There it is. They surrendered their will to God's will. 
They willingly gave up their own needs and interests and surrendered themselves to Christ, his mission, and his church. Beloved, we can never follow the pattern of the Macedonian church unless we first give ourselves to the Lord. Let's look now also at the pattern of the Messiah. Verse 9 says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Christ went from rich to poor. Paul's not talking about material wealth here. He's talking about spiritual wealth and spiritual poverty. Think about it. Christ, Jesus Christ, before he came to the earth, he was fully rich in heaven. Think about it. He created the universe, so that means he's the owner of it all. In heaven, he had all of his glory. It wasn't veiled at all. The, day, the angels day and night praised and worshiped him, crying, holy, holy, holy. Whenever he needed something to be done, all he did was, all he could do was call on an angel, and they would do whatever he commanded. He was rich in glory, honor, and praise. He sat on the throne in heaven. But he gave all of that up and became poor. How did Jesus became how did Jesus become poor? Well, he gave up the glory he had in heaven and covered himself in human flesh. The king of kings became a lowly servant. He who created human beings became a tiny fetus and was born to a common virgin. He who was radiating with glory in heaven was born in a stable with dirty animals, born with the, 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 the smell and odor of manure, he, he, he became poor in that he, he, had, he, he resided in heaven before, but when he came to earth, he would say, foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no work to lay his head. He, he, and then when you move from his incarnation, him becoming a human, then you look toward the end of his life, he became poor in that he was betrayed by one of his own disciples. His own people refused to believe in him. His own people cried, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. He died the worst, worst death possible. He became so poor figuratively that after he died, he was buried in a borrowed tomb. This is the pattern of grace given by Christ. What would cause Jesus Christ, who was rich, to become poor? Look what verse 9 says. It says that though he was rich, he became poor. Three words, for your sake. <laughs> Beloved, let that sink in for a minute. For your 
sake, everything that Christ endured on the earth was for you. He was your substitute. He left heaven for your sake. He took your place on the cross. He died your death. It was in your place that condemned he stood. For your sake, he became poor so that we could become rich. Not materially, but spiritually. The riches of redemption and righteousness and glory and everlasting life. Beloved, this is the premier, prime example of grace giving. Christ became a servant so that we could be set free. He came down so that we could go up. I wish I had a church in here this morning. He was tempted so that we could overcome. He died so that we might be saved. Jesus. Notice what Paul does. He takes the gospel and says, this is going to be my motivation for giving. We, we got all this talk about gospel-centered Christians and gospel-centered uh, churches and gospel this and gospel that. Got the gospel everything now. But yet 2.5% is what Christians give. How gospel are we? The gospel needs to go to the nations. Beloved, there is, a, what's happening in India right now is heartbreaking. More thousands upon thousands of people are getting infected with the virus and thousands are dying. Many of those who are dying have never heard the gospel. Could it be that more could have heard the gospel if Christians would give more than 2.5% so that we could support missionaries? Let's move on from the pattern for grace giving to the principles for grace giving. Let's move to chapter 9. Verse number six, the point is this, Paul says, whoever sows sparing will also uh, reap sparing. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. The principle is this, you reap what you sow. Sow a little, reap a little. Sow a lot, reap a lot. Simple, if a farmer wanted a great harvest, he had to sow more seed. And if you cheat on the sowing, you will cheat yourself on the harvest. For the record, beloved, this is not a get-rich-quick scheme. The goal shouldn't be give more so I can get more. That's not grace. That's quid pro quo. In a moment, we will see that the more you give, the more you receive, not to spend on yourself, but to actually give more. Give more, receive more, so that you can give more. Look at their heart, verse number seven. Each person must give as he has decided on in his heart. At the end of the day, generosity is a matter of the heart. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Your attitude matters. How you give is more important than how much you give. He says, don't give reluctantly. That's with grief, sorrow, 
not under compulsion, not under pressure or force. Give cheerfully, gladly, happily. God loves a cheerful giver. Those are the principles. Let's look at the promises of grace giving. Verse 8 says, and God is able. And the Bible says God is able. Let me try that again. The Bible says God is able. Uh, these people gave out of their poverty, but they needed to know God is able. He, he, he's able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Here's the promise, church, that God will graciously provide all of our needs at all times so that we can abound in every good work. Can I, can I share with you how the church I grew up used to say it? Here's what they would say about verses like this. You can't be God-giving no matter how you try. They will say something, the more he gives, the more you give to him, the more he gives to you. You can't beat God giving. Now watch this, watch this though. God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency, let me help you there, Having all sufficiency. See, if we're not careful, we'll think, okay, the more I give, then he'll make sure I have a, a, a sufficiency for whatever else I need. No, that word sufficiency literally means contentment. Hallelujah. So what God does, he, he, when you give, he'll let you be content with what you already have. Yeah, he, he may not always give you more money, but he'll make you content so that you don't have to suffer with greed and envy and jealousy. Lord, make us content. Help us to stop wanting more and more and more and more of material possessions which Jesus says will rust. Help us, Lord, to seek treasure in heaven. Help us, Lord, to be content with how blessed we really are. The poorest people in, in America are middle class in other parts of the world. So maybe it's not that we need more stuff. We just need to be content. And the text says, as you give, God will help you to be content. In all things. Hallelujah. See, y'all think this contentment has to do with money and possessions. But sometimes when you give one way God blesses is he'll make you content in your marriage. He'll make you content in your... What, amen back there. Hold on. <laughs> he'll make you content in your singleness. He'll make you content, watch this, with your job. He'll make you content with the house you live in. He'll make you content with the hoop that you drive. <laughs> yes, he will. God is able. Yeah. All right. The grace of God. 
Not only is the promises the grace of God, but another promise is the glory of God. Verse 11 says that when we are generous in every way, it will produce thanksgiving to God. When we are generous to others, it results in others giving thanks to God. Maybe some of our stinginess is causing others to be ungrateful. Beloved, we are to be the means by which God gets the glory. We're done. Worship team, you can start making your way back. I just love, I just love how Paul ends this chapter in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 15. He just says this, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. We have said over and over again that giving is us expressing our gratitude for the grace of God toward us. And this is where we get it from. Maybe if you're struggling with being generous, you need to remember God's gift to you. Thanks be to God. For his inexpressible gift. Listen, let me, tell, let me help you understand why you need to be thankful. Let, here, here's why you need to be thankful. It's because, because you are a sinner, it should have been you on the cross. It was for your sins that Jesus died on the cross. It was for your sins that Jesus suffered. It was for your sins that he was beaten, battered, and bruised. It was for your sins that the wrath of God was poured out on his one and only son. It was because of you. But what you deserve, God didn't give it to you. He gave it to his son. What you deserve, he gave it to somebody else. Jesus became our substitute. He took our place. And, and what we receive in return is the grace of God upon us. He gave us the faith to believe. He gave us grace to be called and adopted into his family. We didn't have the right. We had to be adopted. And this is the kind of adoption that once you're in, you're always in. I can't lose but this gift. Thanks be to God. Let me see. Y'all ain't getting this. It's running time now. See, here's what you have to understand. You had a seat reserved for you in hell. But when Jesus got up bright early Sunday morning with all the power in his hand, your seat in hell was canceled. And now you're in heaven. Thanks be to God. Thanks, thanks be to God that I'm saved, I'm saved, I'm saved. I've been rescued, I've been delivered. Thanks be to God, but that's not how the story is. Thanks be to God that not only am I saved from my sin, but he's saving me right now. I'm still a work in progress. He's patient with me. He's working on me. Thanks be to God. But that's not how the story is. One day, I will be saved from the very presence 
of sin. I'm going to be just like Jesus. He's going to give me a resurrected body. No more pain. No more heartache. Thanks be to God. Is there anybody here that's thankful? Thankful. I'm thankful. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. Jesus got up from the grave and then he went up to heaven and he sat down at the right hand of his father and you only sit down when the work is done. Hallelujah. Thanks be to God. Jesus prays for me. Thanks be to God for his gift. He that knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God. Thank you. Thank you. Hallelujah. And now that is what motivates our giving. Now, I think about how much God has given for me and to me. My life, take it all, thank you. My life in your hands. We just sing, my heart is yours. Is it really? For your treasure is there, your heart will be also. Is your heart really his? Come on. Somebody might be here today, before you ever start giving, you need to recognize what God has already gifted you. And that's forgiveness. For all of your sins, your crimes, your transgressions. So now the work has been done. Jesus has paid it all. All you have to do is believe. Put all your trust and hope in Jesus Christ. And you will be saved. You can join in on the thanksgiving. You will immediately be saved from the wrath of God. You will become a part of his family. Jesus has done all the work you believe. And if you trust in Jesus Christ for the first time today, we want to know. Put it on the back of the bridge card and we will get with you, talk to you, make sure you understand the implications of your faith and get you started on the next step to becoming a devoted follower of Christ. Or you can talk to me or one of our elders after the service if you're in the room. Believe the Lord Jesus Christ. For the rest of us, we need to examine our hearts. We sing, my heart is yours. But we need to examine every area of our life, especially in the area of giving. Let's stand.